please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, Inc. And I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today sits at the busy intersection of healthcare and financial planning. Carolyn McClanahan was a practicing physician for a number of years. After a frustrating search for a financial planner for her and her husband, she decided to study financial planning and earned the CFP designation. In 2004, she founded financial planning firm Life Planning Partners and serves as the firm's director of financial planning. She also co-founded WealthCare, a software program that identifies and troubleshoots age-related risks. Carolyn strongly believes that individuals and financial advisors should think proactively about the implications of aging for healthcare and financial planning. She is sought after as a public speaker and a media expert on matters of aging, healthcare, and personal finances, and we're thrilled to have her here today. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure always to talk with you guys. Carolyn, let's start with your career trajectory, which wasn't precisely straightforward. You started out with a career in, in medicine. What drew you to that field initially? Uh, well, it was very interesting. When I started college, I actually had plans to be an actuary. And um, I was a math nerd. My nickname in high school was the human calculator. And um, I just I thought I would be doing something in math. And then when I once I got into college and started actually in higher math, it seemed more theory than numbers. And I love numbers. And my dad told me you should be an accountant, but I, you can never do what your dad says. And <laughs> so I um. I was an athletic trainer for all the sports teams in high school and in college. And my friends there in that world said, you have to become a physical therapist. And so I worked for a physical therapist for the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college. I realized all they do is what the doctors tell them to do. And doctors don't always understand physical therapy. And I thought, gosh, if I have to work this hard to get into physical therapy school, I just I want to I should go to med school because I don't want to be bossed around. I want to be the boss. And so I went to med school and I actually loved medicine. I, um, I long story, my my major in college ended up being microbiology and with concentration in immunology and virology. And um, I ended up in pathology and working in the pathology department and did a residency in that and then realized how much I liked people. And I switched to primary care and um, ended up practicing mostly emergency medicine. And um, that's how it all started. And I loved medicine. I loved patient care. I was not looking to get out of medicine when I went back to school. It truly was driven by my husband and I trying to find a financial planner. And, and most financial planners, this was back in 2000, they they sell things or they, they just manage investments. My husband wanted to switch careers from being an engineer to being a track coach and a photographer. And I said, I'm not going to like support you. So um, that's when we tried to find one. And I just didn't feel comfortable with any of them, went back to school and fell in love with it and, and saw this huge need for people getting real advice, not just sales or investments. And here I am. And so I was going to ask, what part of that effort of finding a financial planner that could serve you did you find so frustrating? Well, realize this was back in 2000, and thankfully, things have changed a lot. And I like to think it's people like me and other members of particularly like NAPFA, the fee-only comprehensive planners, that kind of have driven the message. And so what really frustrated me the most is 
we went in there with a question. My husband had inherited some money from his parents and, you know, this was the mid nineties and we had turned it into a nice pot of money. And so could we use that money for him to change careers? We were in our mid thirties at the time. So um, it was awfully young to be thinking about retirement and all that. And we didn't want to retire, but it's like, what could he do? And everybody we talked to, it was really more about, oh, here's how we're going to invest your money and not really answer our question of, is it safe? How can, how much of his money can he use? Can, is it safe for him to do this? And then when I was looking at what they were recommending and, and I used a lot of Morningstar stuff and, you know, still do to this day, I'm like, God, the fees in this in what these guys are recommending is huge. And we had done well on our own already. And mainly we're looking for financial planning. And so the frustrating part is one, they weren't answering our questions. Two, they were charging a lot of money to not answer our questions. And and three, the focus really truly was on investments and not on financial planning. Your firm, uh, Life Planning Partners, is a flat fee financial planning firm. Let's talk about that business model. What attracted to you you to it and why you think it's a good option for both you and your clients? So when I opened Life Planning Partners, my goal was to create basically what my husband and I were looking for. And I had to get my experience requirement to get my CFP. I ended up working for an insurance company that told me they were fee only. And this is back in the days you could sell insurance and be fee-only on the brokerage side and call yourself fee-only. So I was pretty blonde at that point, but I learned how I didn't want to do things. And then that's when I also discovered NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. And it's like, woo, I found my home. It was my peeps. And it was basically people doing comprehensive planning and acting as fiduciaries. And they all charge different ways. Some of them use AUM, some use hourly, and a tiny few are using a flat fee model. And when I opened my firm, I actually used an AUM model because it was the only thing that really seemed easy enough. But then after I was in my practice a couple of years, I'm like, this isn't working. And I had clients who were really complicated that I, I wasn't really managing much money for, doing a lot of planning. And then clients with Um, a lot of money who didn't need as much work. And I felt like they were overpaying. So that's where I really grappled with, you know, how am I spending my time with these clients? And plus the fact that an AUM model really makes people focus on investments because it's kind of the opening of the conversation of how you charge your fees. And it's like, well, I charge on how much money you, you have. And that's, that didn't feel right. So I finally um, just uh, bit bit it down and changed my fee model based on complexity, and it worked beautifully. Why do you think that the flat fee model isn't more commonplace in the industry, and do you see indications that that's beginning to change? It's definitely not more commonplace because it's a lot harder to calculate what the fees are going to be, and and people and it's hard to tell people that their fees are going to be, say, 10000 a year, 15000 a year, 20000 a year. You know, you look at an AUM model and you say to somebody, oh, I charge you 1%. And if they come to you with $2 million, that's 20000 a year. And that 1% sounds easy. And whereas saying to somebody, you're going to pay me 20000 a year is not easy. And that's where advisors have a hard time. For me, what I did is I broke down exactly how much time I was spending on planning, how much on investments. And in our, when we calculate our fees, it, we look at number of, client, of family members for the client, generations, even if they have an older generation that we're not going to take care of directly, 
we end up helping them with those issues down the road. So that's actually already calculated in the fee. And then we look, do they own businesses? How many income streams do they have? How complicated is their tax planning? And so for every part of that, we have a certain amount that we charge for that. And we don't advertise that to the clients because we don't want them nickel and diming us. We say it's all all or none. We're going to do everything for you or, or we're, you're not going to be a client. So when we say to them their fee, and let's say, and our, our typical client is um, two to 10 million. We have um, some clients in the 20 million range, but our typical clients, two to 10 million net worth. And when we say to them their fees are, a fraction of what they would pay at an AUM-based advisor. They don't argue with us about the nickel and dime. So I want to talk about how you divide your time these days. So you're involved in your planning firm, Life Planning Partners. You've also been involved in getting wealth care, your software product off the ground. You are active on social media and the speaking circuit. So how do you do it and how do you divide your schedule? Well, I'm very, very lucky in that I hired a business coach early in my practice and I had to make a decision. This was like in 2007, thankfully, and I think it's because one, people were just hungry for comprehensive fee-only financial planning. And two, I was just so passionate about it. My practice was growing like crazy. And I was a solo practitioner at that time. And, and the business coach it, it, and at that same point, I had started doing some speaking for NAP for members, just um, things that I recognized from medicine that could help them be better financial planners. And then when I saw how valuable this message was, I'm like, wow, I really need to be using that to help the profession. So how can I run a practice that's going like crazy and do this education for financial advisors. And that's when the business coach and I came up with the idea that I'd create an ensemble model. So I did my first hire was, I hired out my least favorite part of the practice. And can you guess what that was? Billing. Billing, billing. No, it was investments. So you hired someone to handle the investment piece for you. I did. So, So my first hire was a CFA. And I had a lot of growth, but I needed to grow a lot more before I could afford a CFA. But I thought, let me just throw it out to the world. And I hired, and he's been with me, you know, 10 years now. I hired Tim Utech. He was previously a large cap value fund manager for Thrivent. And then he went to the personal finance side for a large accounting firm. He lived up in Chicago and, um, but then I put it, but his big complaint with the firm he worked with is they were doing all this asset management, but they really weren't helping people plan for how to use their money. And so when I put out that advertisement, he came and he worked with me for three months on a trial basis and he fell in love with the model. He took a huge pay cut to come work with me and, and it's been wonderful since then. So since that time, we've have now two more advisors and the way we split and we have 95 client families. And again, our typical client is um, 2 million net worth and up. And so we are sort of a family office, except we don't pay bills for people, but we help them with all their, anything that's attached to a dollar decision. We're helping them with that. And even some things on the side, like, you know, medical issues and stuff, we help, help them negotiate the healthcare system a little bit, but the the way it's split up now is I do basically the aging planning and I'm the big picture person and the emergency planner. So if we get a call from a client saying, 
um, I've just been diagnosed with a serious illness, then, you know, we have, we've developed processes around that. Or if they have a child issue or just anything abnormal comes up, I'm the one who deals with that. And, and Carrie Jones is our, our other planner. She deals with now she's doing more of the estate planning and, and insurance and projection planning. Joey does um, is doing project. He's our newest advisor. He's 27 now. And he's actually already acting as a lead advisor on insurance and on and doing projection planning with Carrie. So um, I, I basically do still a lot of the tax planning because I love tax. I don't know where that came from, maybe because I should have been an accountant like my dad said. But, uh, but I'm still doing a lot of tax planning, but Joey is taking over more of that. Right now, I'm spending about four days a week in life planning partners, and then I still am working too much. I'll admit that. I, I work 50 to 60 hours a week, and um, the rest of that time is spent on wealth care and on writing and on speaking engagements. So maybe could we go back to investments for a second? It sounds like that's, at least with respect to your responsibilities, that's something you chose to delegate to somebody else. I'm just curious what role that plays in your overall practice and how it is you set expectations with your clients when it comes to investment and, and putting it in the context of their broader plan? So the one other thing that my business coach, and um, Tracy Beckus is her name, she was just so fantastic, that she made me do from the beginning is create client engagement standards. And what those are, and, and if people can go to our website and, and look at them and download them, is it sets expectations of what we deliver to clients and what we expect for clients for it to be a good working relationship. And one of the things we put in there is clients have to agree with our investment process and how we do investments. We won't provide advice on investments we don't use and we won't like give them hot stock tips or any any of that. And we also provide potential new clients our investment process and our investment philosophy. So it's about a six-page document that explains how we manage investments. And they have to read and understand that before we'll allow them to become a client. We're passive. So on the equity side, we tend to use things like DFA, Vanguard, iShares. And on the bond side, we use a lot of individual bonds. And I know there's a big argument out there of bond funds versus individual bonds. We just like that known capital preservation of individual bonds and the for sure cash flows as opposed to using bond funds. Caroline, I want to talk about healthcare, and we'll probably spend the bulk of the interview here talking about healthcare and related matters. Let's just start with healthcare costs, which, as almost everyone knows, have been inflating at a much higher rate than the general inflation rate. You don't think that is sustainable. What do you think would put downward pressure on healthcare costs? You know, the, the Hindu god Shiva says, from all destruction may great things be reborn. And I really am, and I know that sounds so nihilist, but I really think that either we fix our healthcare system or everything's going to fall apart. And right now what we're seeing in healthcare is this escalation in cost, but we also are seeing a lot of people opting out of the healthcare system because of high deductibles, uh, high healthcare premiums. They're just not getting their primary care done, their basic care done. And in the future, it's going to hurt us. And, and, you know, I talk to people who are on both the left and the right about 
you know, where does healthcare fit in in the United States as far as capitalism? And you can't have a good workforce, a productive workforce, if they're not healthy. So I have the belief that we should be providing primary care to everybody as a public service because it's cheap. Now, is that going to happen? That's a pipe dream, but I think eventually if we do not get healthcare costs under control by doing things like providing basic primary care, which is cheap. And so you say it's cheap relative to big, bad healthcare costs later in life that getting people. Right, yeah. right. So what's happening is because we do such a poor job of taking care of our basic health, we in, in this country, we spend so much money on end stage health care. That really doesn't help anybody. And because we have a fee-for-service model, because we have such high overhead, that's what's caused our inflation rate of our health care to go astronomically higher compared to everybody else's. But other countries are actually facing health care inflation costs, too, because there's so much that can be done in medicine. But they're so efficient to begin with that it hasn't affected them as much. You know, right now, healthcare costs are about 19.7% of GDP, and we've been averaging a 6 to 7% inflation rate since the 70s. If that keeps happening, healthcare costs will consume 50% of GDP in the next 25 years. That is not sustainable. And so something's going to have to give other countries, you know, it, the percent of GDP is more along the lines of 9 and 10%. So their healthcare inflation rates have been 5 to 6%. They're going to face trouble at some point too, but not, not in the way we are. We're just so far ahead of the curve in a bad way in, in how we spend money on healthcare that we're going to have to figure out a solution much sooner. So you've written about how tethering our health care to our employment is an ill-conceived system that we would never have devised if we were starting from scratch. What about people who, you know, as the line went, like their health care? A system that goes away from that would potentially be unattractive to them? Well, it would be unattractive to the people who are employed, but I would argue that a lot of employers are realizing that it's not healthy for their business for them to be the go-between for the health insurance agent and providing health insurance coverage. And we've seen more and more employers shift more of the cost onto the employees. I bet if you broke it down, especially into smaller companies versus larger companies, employees are not as enamored with their employer-based coverage as they used to be. And I think if a politician can devise a system that will still give flexibility and provide care that's cost-effective, that that would win over employer-based coverage anytime. You know, the other thing you have to look at is employers, they're required to act as fiduciaries for 401k plans, right? But they're not required to act as fiduciaries for employer-based health coverage. And the reason why that wasn't an issue before is because the employers used to foot 100% of the bill. I think we're going to start seeing lawsuits from employees just like we saw with the 401k plans about employers not being good purchasers of insurance. They're not acting as fiduciaries. And now the employees can use the argument that, yes, I'm having to put my money into this system too, so you need to be helping me make good decisions. And I think that will help push employers out of the market eventually too. So what type of system would you favor? If we were starting from scratch, where would you start? Wow. Yeah, I mean <laughs> – there's so many choices out there. And what I tell people is we really need to pick one and go for it. 
My my favorite is something that was done in Spain back in 1982, and they've morphed it since then. But I would love for us to provide primary care as a public service and do that through community health centers because community health centers, they can provide basic primary care, mental health care, and dental care for less than $1,000 per person per year. And that's being done now in some really well-run community health centers. And if we did that nationwide, we have 325 million people, so it costs $325 billion a year to provide that basic care as a public service. Considering that we spend $3.5 trillion a year on health care now, that's a drop in the bucket. You know, the government funds about half of that $3.5 trillion, so about $1.7 trillion is is the government's part. And so to to do $325 billion to provide basic care as a primary service would be nothing. And if somebody didn't want to use community health centers, there's a big movement now called direct primary care, where there are primary care doctors doing a very relatively inexpensive subscription model to provide all those primary care services as part of the subscription. And see, once we do that, if we provide primary care for all, then we can remove primary care from insurance coverage, which right now, insurance coverage, you have baked in overhead of 25 to 30%. And you're basically paying more for insurance coverage than you would pay for primary care directly. So you remove the primary care from insurance coverage and, and policies would look more, again, like catastrophic policies. So if you have a serious illness or a high cost illness, that's when insurance would kick in. And so what would that system look like? We could then go one of three ways, basically. Medicare for all, um, a lot of people are proponents of that because it would reduce overhead significantly. Or two, we could go on the ACA-based system where you have private coverage, but I would add to that that we need a public option such as Medicare as an option for purchase. And there are now bills in Congress that, that there's nine different versions of Medicare for all going on in Congress right now. One, the true Medicare for all, but one with Medicare as an option for purchase. And the third way you could do it, which I have not been a fan of just because corporate America says one thing, but they do another, and that's to have a totally free market health insurance system. And, and I don't think that would work unless there were a lot of um, regulations to make sure that these insurance companies really were providing the right care. And each of these plans definitely would have risk and benefits that we would have to pay attention to. So that's very thoughtful. That's not the system we have, obviously, though, and I know that you're living in this day-to-day with your clients. You used the term aging planning, I believe, earlier, a component of which I would imagine is, let's call it, healthcare planning, um, helping clients to identify and manage through uh, emergent healthcare needs or things that might be in the horizon. And so can you give a quick thumbnail on when it's working with a client how that plan takes shape and, and how you make sure that you with they are being as circumspect as possible about what their future, as you put it, aging planning needs might be. Yeah. So the reason I got into this is through my years as a financial planner, I had clients as they were aging, get into trouble. And it was with four big things. 
of one, they refused to quit driving. And so we actually had a client in her 80s have a couple accidents and was a, the only client I've ever had that the umbrella insurance policy was actually tapped into. And then when do you move? And, and we had clients that refused to move and ended up getting into trouble with living independently when they shouldn't have been living independently. When do you get help with financial decisions? So another client that was defrauded just because she was having cognitive issues, making it difficult to make financial decisions. And then finally, when do you get help with healthcare decisions? Because people, especially families at the end of life, know when they haven't had good conversations about what is important about quality of life, often they are um, forced into very reactive decisions around healthcare that end up being more torture and more expensive than doing what would have been right for the client in the first place, which would be to keep them comfortable. So I saw all these issues and, I, and I'm and i like, God, we got to do something better. And this is where my background as an emergency medicine doctor came into play. We, um, in the emergency room, whenever you have downtime and or, or even if you don't, you schedule training to prepare for things such as mass casualty events, bioterrorist events. And I know it sounds sad, but if you go through it and you think through these things and you practice what you would do if the bad thing happened, then you're more likely to do the right thing when the event actually happened. I thought, you know, we should be, and this is before I knew a lot of behavioral psychology. And, and now that I've read so much more, it's like, it goes right up the lane of behavioral psychology. If we can get people to start talking about this when they're well and documenting what they would do if a bad thing happens, it would make it much more likely that they'll actually follow through. So I started creating this about 10 years ago, all these processes. And generally when people are hitting their fifties and sixties, cause that's when you're brain's still working relatively well, you know, because the chance of cognitive decline as you get even older is much, much higher and you become more concrete in your thinking. So I started this and put together all these processes around those big four and getting them to document when they'll turn over all these issues and get help with these issues. And it was very successful. So, um, so I guess that's a long answer to your question of when do you start all this and how you bring it up? You start it while people are still doing well. And when do you bring it up? We bring it up at the beginning of a client engagement. We say, we're going to do your estate planning. And after we get all that done, we're going to take you through our aging planning. And, and we just plant these seeds along the way that we're going to be doing this type of process. Maybe to help everyone visualize the type of planning that you do, let's start with something that many of us have grappled with, parents driving when you don't think they should be. So talk about how you approach that with clients. I assume you do it kind of at the family level, but how does a conversation like that go down and how is it planned for in advance of the need to take the keys away? So before I started wealth care planning, and I co-founded that with Chris High out of Boston, we have a team that helped. Before I had the software that helped with all this, basically, I just had this checklist of here are the things we're going to talk about at some point. We need to put a transportation plan in place and we need to have pet care plans in place. We needed to have a financial caretaking agreement in place. And so I'd have this little list to say to clients, we're going to tackle these a little at a time. And the driving one was really easy. I just had this worksheet that said, if you have issues with driving, for example, if you quit using turn signals or you have a couple of fender benders or getting lost, which that would be really late stage, do you agree to be evaluated for your driving? We never say 
quit, you know, lose your license. We say be evaluated because there are companies out there, rehab companies that actually do driving evaluations where they won't pull your license, but they'll say, hey, you shouldn't be driving or two, here's the things you can do to drive more safely as you're aging. And, and so we just had those worksheets. We'd give it to clients. Now with WealthCare, basically we send them a link to a questionnaire that takes them through the driving decisions, the healthcare decisions, and the financial caretaking decisions and when they're going to move. So it's two questionnaires that they fill out. And it makes it easy for the advisor and now for me because I don't have to ask those questions directly. The software asks the questions. And it gives me a report about how the client answered. And that report is what starts the conversation directly. So you approach some of these issues at kind of a whole family level, which I love because it's so practical. So one thing that you and I talked about in the past was if it's the elderly adult's plan to remain in the home as long as possible, you really make the kids sign on the dotted line that they're going to follow through on these ongoing obligations. Can you talk about how all that works, bringing the family together into these conversations? You know, I've learned a long time ago that just doing the right thing for people makes your business so much better. And so when we started this planning and helping clients with this, part of it is we should meet your children so that they understand what's going on so that they know the plan and they're not worried and they agree with you on the plan. And this is very different. You know, I I used to laugh at these seminars for advisors on, oh, how to reach out to your next generation. And it's all this fluffy stuff of like inviting them to lunch and having events for the children. If you're doing a good job taking care of the client, you don't have to do that. You, You have a real reason to actually meet the next generation and and it's not a schmarmy, oh, I want you to be my next generation client thing. It's I'm helping your parent here. And and so we'd like you involved in helping your parent. And so when that happens, when we have those conversations with children that we haven't met yet, it's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Because we worried about this sort of stuff. And we're so happy our parents have a plan in place. And Sometimes the the families don't agree and we help them negotiate those conversations about what's going to happen and when. And we also become an advocate for for the parent, for the older client. And, you know, when you think about fraud and abuse, 90% of fraud and abuse is done by people close to you. And if the child knows that we're looking over everything, it, it keeps everybody on their best behavior. And what I tell people is, 3% of the population is inherently bad. They're psychopaths, sociopaths. 97% of the population is good, but a lot of times that 97% is put into bad cultures or bad situations where they act bad. And by creating these conversations and having good open communication and transparency, it reduces the chance that bad things are going to go wrong in that family. You talked earlier about how, I think the term you used was client engagement standards. It sounds like it's a form of qualifying your clients to ensure that they align with how it is you approach things from an investment standpoint. It sounds like that's critically important when it comes to some of these aging planning issues as well. And I'm just curious, when it comes to addressing physical and cognitive frailties, I mean, that's even more fraught for some people than the question of whether you're going to be active or passive on the investment side, right? And so... How do you approach that with prospects to make sure that 
they're right for you and, and you're going to be right for them and, and that they're actually going to commit the way they need to commit for Aging Planet to succeed as you imagine. Yeah. So that's a great question. And the engagement standards, only three or four of the engagement standards talk about the investments and the rest of them, I don't know off the top of my head how many there are, but it's two, it's two pages of things we do and a, a page of what we expect from clients. So it's it's three pages long, basically. And and it does go over, we are comprehensive planners, and here's what we're going to be doing for you. If you are not into comprehensive planning, ongoing comprehensive planning, then we're not right for you. And so one of the things they have to agree to is that they're going to participate in ongoing planning. The other thing that we need from clients for it to be a good fit is for them to also be engaged delegators, which means basically that as a team with the client, we we are going to do all this stuff with them and they have to let us do our work and participate. So um, those engagement standards really set the tone for the type of work we're going to be doing. And we're at the fortunate point now where people who are potential clients, most of them come from current clients. And so they, they know what they're going to be getting into. So it makes it less of an issue. And the client engagement standards end up being more of a codifier of, oh, yes, this is what you've heard. And this is what we do. And here's how it's going to be. So it's been a beautiful thing to use. Let's discuss some of the financial risks that can crop up as we age. You mentioned financial fraud as um, being one and often perpetrated by family members. Let's talk about some of the other things you think about as financial risks for your aging clients. Mistakes, I would imagine, as, as a cognitive decline can be an issue. Yeah, that's a huge thing. It actually, the client's biggest risk to their financial security is actually themselves. And as we age, we tend to lose the ability to um, parse out uh, complex decisions, especially around math. And hopefully, though, most people, as they age, they gain wisdom. And so they know it's like, okay, I got to take time and really think about this. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't learn that. And, and so they're using complicated investments that they don't understand they tend to believe, um, go based on how they feel about a person instead of really doing research. So they're, that's how they're, they're um, defrauded by people like uh, um, Bernie Madoff. And so because you just totally believe them. And so it's, it's really important for people to, one, simplify their financial life as they age. They should not have complex investments. They shouldn't have multiple properties and they shouldn't have investments sitting all over the place. They need to consolidate as much as possible. And two, they need they do need to stay organized. And, and we um, highly encourage the use of client portals so that when it's time for family members to kind of check behind, then it, it, a portal is great because they can see everything the client's doing, but they can't actually get to their money. Let's talk about healthcare cost planning for retirement. Fidelity every year comes out with that big scary number where they look at what a 65-year-old couple will spend over their lifetimes. And I think the most recent was getting pretty close to $300,000. How should people approach healthcare as an element of their financial plans? Well, you know, that's, it's so tough because we have no idea what the healthcare system is going to look like. And 
the most important thing that people underestimate what they should really be doing is number one, taking care of their health. And that means, you know, eating right, exercising, avoiding toxic substances and toxic people and doing everything they can to stay healthy because that is going to provide them ideally with a longer, healthier life, which will allow them to stay more productive and work longer. And so given that, if somebody's actually close to retirement, which I hate that word, by the way, and in fact, in our in our firm, our goal is to help people plan for life transitions and the choice to quit your give to give up your human capital, your ability to work. It's made very seriously, and in fact, I, I'd love to do a study one day. Most of our clients actually end up retiring in their seventies because they choose to, and so so when thinking around healthcare costs. A great way to keep them down is if you're employed and you have an employer providing a lot of your um, health care coverage, that's that's a, a huge benefit. One, you're still making money. Two, you're providing good health care. Now, if you have to quit work and you're relying on things like Medicare and, and Medigap plans, it's real important for you to look at your own health care consumerism. And I, I often talk about, are you a high health care user or a low health care user? So, and I like to give the example of the 98-year-old patient I saw who, she was a new patient to me, this is back when I was a doctor, and she said, honey, and she looked like she was like early 70s, she says, honey, I haven't been to the doctor in decades. I'm like, wow, she's on the low end of healthcare usage. <laughs> and the only reason she was coming to see me is she had this big, thick toenail and needed me to use those industrial toenail clippers to clip her toenail so her shoe would fit. And, and so that sort of person, I mean, it, 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 she spent nothing on healthcare. But on the other side, you have people both healthy and unhealthy who go to the doctor for everything, you know, hangnails, itchy rear end, you name it. They want, to go, they want the doctor to investigate it. And so you've got to look at what type of healthcare user are you? Are you the one who's going to do everything and go to the ends of the earth? If so, and Fidelity, their numbers are, are it's just a, a spitball and it, they're useless. To me, uh, I mean, they, they open a conversation, but otherwise they're really useless. I prefer more the Employee Benefit Research Institute numbers because they actually give a percentile of what healthcare costs are. So people who are on the higher end of the EBRI numbers, those high healthcare users, that's numbers you want to use for estimated healthcare costs, as opposed to if you're that 98-year-old patient who never goes to the doctor, you'd use like the 10% EBRI numbers. And so do you try to model this programmatically through the software that you mentioned before, WealthCare? Yeah. So what WealthCare does is it takes into account a person's um, health, their healthcare mindset. So how do they utilize healthcare? And it, it gives them what their estimated out-of-pocket expenses are starting at age 65. In reality, and what I tell people is I don't like projecting healthcare costs. So many advisors want to do it, and that's why we provide it. What I say to people is – Look at what you're spending, and and I break it into pre-retirees and post-retirees. Look at what you're spending now, and we have some clients that spend that are healthy. They're spending twenty and thirty thousand dollars a year on healthcare because they're they're they want to optimize everything. That's very few client clients, but but we're putting that in their cash flows for their projections going forward. And if you're a low healthcare user then you got to at least put in the projections what are you going to be your Medicare um, B, D, and Medigap costs in your projections. So you need to personalize it to the client based on their health and health history and healthcare usage. 
So we've talked about cognitive decline, and I want to get back to some more specific questions on that. But it seems like a natural time to talk about the elephant in the room in terms of healthcare outlays for a lot of seniors, which is the prospect of long-term care. And this is a, a really tough question. Um, how to navigate this, how to insure against it, whether to insure against it. How do you approach that question with your clients? You're right. That's another tough one. They ideally want to die in their home. And I have one client who said, you're going to have to pull me out of my home by my cold blue toenails, meaning, of course, he's dead. And um, when you look at health care, long-term care costs for people, People don't understand how expensive it could be to stay at home as long as possible, especially if they say to their kids, you have to, I don't ever want you to put me in a nursing home. And I've actually had a client whose mother said that, and she kept her home a long past when it was safe. And and thank goodness the mother had plenty of money, but she was blowing it. And mom had this horrible quality of life. Finally, when she was, her mom was just so far gone, I said, it's just not safe for her to be there and for you to have these 24-hour caretakers that aren't safe with them. And so she did end up, end up putting her in a facility, and she actually did better. It's, it's amazing. People are so afraid of it, but if you find the right place, it ends up working out. So the way you've got to talk about the, the planning for long-term care expenses, which I like that part of wealth care because we actually do take into account What's your health? People who are very healthy are going to have a longer long-term care need. People with dementia have an average long-term care need of five years instead of the two to three that most people have. If you're very unhealthy, you have you don't have to worry as much about long-term care. Because, and I, what I joke is if you live an unhealthy lifestyle and you have that massive stroke and they put you in the nursing home, nobody's going to put gin in your feeding tube and put the cigarette up to your lips. You know, so so you're going to live healthier in the nurse in nursing home, but still, if you're that far gone, you're not going to need long-term care that long. So making it, uh, and it's a hard conversation. You have to be honest with people about what their lifestyle is like and what they're doing, and so that helps you prepare better long-term care costs. Then that's where you have to go down the road. Where are you going to get your long-term care? If you live in San Diego and your daughter lives in. Um, Kissimmee, Florida, it's much cheaper for you to move out to be with your daughter in Kissimmee, Florida in a facility there because care costs in San Diego are hugely expensive. So you've got to look at the location of care and then and and then getting those agreements in advance of who's going to do what and what consideration they're going to be given to help you. Um, prepare for your care. So there's just so many different considerations and it's actually planning for the things that you can control that'll help control costs. And after you're done with all that, that's when you decide how are you going to pay for it. Well, let's talk about the key options. Um, Medicaid is obviously the biggest payer of long-term care expenses in the U.S. It is probably not something you want your clients to rely on. So let's talk about the the big three, which would seem to be buying some sort of pure long-term care policy, doing a hybrid policy, or self-funding long-term care. A lot of people I talk to, Morningstar readers and viewers say, I'm going to self-fund long-term care. What should they think about before they do that? Well, So first off, get a grip on what the costs are really going to be for what your ideal long-term care is. And that's why we recommend WealthCare because it does a really good job of that to figure out what are the costs going to be first to make sure you really have the money to self-fund. And then two, 
I like for people to to identify it as a bucket because you'll have clients who they'll have plenty of money, but then nobody will want to spend it for their care. And especially if children are looking at, well, that could be my inheritance. Um, do I really want to put mom in that really nice nursing home or do I want to put her in the skid row nursing home? You know, so, and, and it's amazing. Even, even the best people can be shaped um, adversely by that. And so it's finding a way to identify that as a bucket of money. This is what's going to be used for my long-term care costs. And then, you know, if you're self-funding, making certain you, your family knows when to say when as far as keeping you at home versus putting you in a facility. The nice thing about self-funding, if you can at least afford the first two years, you're, that'll get you into a facility that's, that's pretty decent. Because if somebody know if the facility knows that you have the money to pay for a couple years, statistics say that you're not going to live much longer than that. So they don't worry about you having to go on Medicaid. And most of them will keep you if you have to go on Medicaid down the road. So I always tell people you have the money to fund for a couple years and you're okay with the idea that you might have to go on Medicaid and spend down all your assets, go for it. If they're not comfortable with that or they're not comfortable, especially putting aside a second bucket, that's where do you look at a long-term care traditional policy or hybrid policy? A lot of people have had a hard time with traditional long-term care policies and we've seen evidence of it. The policies that were sold 20, 30 years ago one, they weren't viable, and so they've had to go up a lot on premiums. And I think policies are priced more fairly now, but because they're priced more fairly, they're so darn expensive. And most people don't want to put out all that money for something that they may not use, and that's why more people are using the hybrid policies. And for the hybrid policies, to me, the nice thing about that is you have a segregated bucket for long-term care costs. It's really not much better than buying a bucket of bonds in reality. It just depends on when you use it and how. But it does give that sense of comfort. And especially if you have somebody who has life insurance policies that they don't need anymore, you can do an exchange into a hybrid long-term care policy, life insurance policy, and it makes good use of that policy. With the hybrids, I know Michael Kitsis has been pretty critical of them. In fact, I saw that he said that potentially they could be some of the most expensive long-term care policies ever sold, in large part because of the opportunity cost of putting a lump sum into such a policy and foregoing potentially higher yields on your money down the line. What's your um, kind of comeback to that criticism? So so I, I agree with what they say. And you have to look at the practical parts of the matter. If, if there's there's more to money than just the numbers, there's a lot of emotion behind it. And in reality, and I think it was Michael that says this, no better than owning bonds. Well, most clients in retirement are going to own a lot of bonds. So yeah, it's a low yield savings account basically. But if it gives the client a peace of mind that they have this money segregated for long-term care, why not? And then, you know, and I think uh, Michael Finke looked at it as if you put it in a diversified portfolio. Well, you know, if you have a 30-year bear market or like our 20-year bear market, like after the depression, it's not going to perform that well. And so to me, I count this as like somebody's safe money. And it really, if if somebody's going to pay cash for a hybrid, it depends on how much money they have, whether I would encourage it or discourage it. So for example, if if they're going to be on the edge of not having enough money to pay for long-term care and their children are going to be fighting about how to pay for it, 
I like the idea of them using a hybrid to segregate that money and, and have it available because it's safe money. Yes, it's not going to be making much, but we're talking $50,000, $100,000, $100,000 lump sum. Usually you'll buy somebody two to three years of long-term care coverage, and that's all they need. So is that really going to hurt them down the road? Yeah, they might make a little less money, but probably not. And then if somebody has way more than enough money, the key is do they want to just have that money segregated, but I, I don't encourage it because they really don't need it. The third, though, if somebody absolutely has an old life insurance policy, again, why not? Um, put it in there, and that, that gives that kind of emotional, oh, I'm, I have some help for long-term care that my family can turn to if I need it. Let's um, dig into cognitive decline a little bit more. I want to talk about what the science is currently telling us about factors that predispose us to encountering cognitive decline. Um, to what extent is heredity in the mix? To what extent would lifestyle choices play a role? One thing you once said to me, Carolyn, was that the healthier you are, the longer you are likely to live, and therefore the more likely you are to encounter cognitive decline. So let's just talk about what we know about what predisposes us to cognitive decline. So unfortunately, there's still not a lot of good science about who's going to have issues and who's not. And the most, a lot of people think, oh, it doesn't run in my family. Well, genetic predisposition is probably, you know, it's not that big a part of it unless it's early onset dementia. So there are gene markers for early onset, but you would know, like if your mom got dementia when she was in her 50s, then you really need to be thinking hard about it and, and maybe even get tested because you could have genetic markers for, for dementia. But for the general population, there's really no, no good way to test. And I don't encourage people to do these things like 23andMe because the information is really not that good yet. And, and it makes people use worry minutes that they really shouldn't be using. I, I, I have the saying that we only get so many worry minutes before we die, so be judicious in how you <laughs> use those. And, and so testing yourself for things where the tests aren't very good is, to me, one of those bad ways to do it. So what factors do matter? So living a healthy lifestyle, so things that have been shown to most likely have a benefit, exercise by and far avoiding toxic substances. So, you know, drug use, alcohol use. And when I tell people about alcohol, you know, there's so many studies out there. Some alcohol's bad, some's good. Too much is definitely bad. Your brain produces, you know, your liver, I'm sorry, produces an enzyme that breaks down alcohol. And that's why when you have one drink, you might feel relaxed. But once you have two, you start to feel, you know, a little inebriated or three, you start to feel really drunk. Then that means your brain cells are being killed because your, your um, liver's not keeping up with your alcohol intake. So if you're having a good buzz for too long, you're losing brain cells. So that's why being careful with alcohol. Um, and really beyond that, there's not much you can do. People who have higher education levels are actually able to cope better because they have higher education, but it really does not affect whether or not they'll get dementia. Some of our listeners, they may be individuals who are operating without an advisor, and and so what can they do to safeguard their plans against 
cognitive decline, you know, notwithstanding their lifestyle. Perhaps they lead a very healthy, vibrant lifestyle, and yet they want to fortify their plan against the potential for future cognitive decline. So what would you suggest so they do? So that's, thankfully, you know, the big pushback we got on wealth care um, from the press, we released wealth care for advisors. It, it's been almost two years now. It'll be two years in June. And the press which I work a lot with both the personal finance press and the industry press, the personal finance press says, when are you going to get this out to the public? And we did release a version for the public just in December. So it's been out a few months. We haven't pushed it real hard yet because we want to see what early usage is like and see how we can shape our message better. But wealthcare is a perfect tool for somebody to test themselves. As part of wealth care, in addition to the the putting the plans in place for the day you can't um, take care of your finances, it also has a cognitive screen that identifies when you're having problems with financial decision making. And so it's a 15-minute assessment. It's a validated tool. My partners are out of uh, Massachusetts General in Boston, so really smart guys out of Harvard. And the, the, the tool, we were, they were published in Alzheimer's and dementia. So it's a validated tool. And it does not test you for dementia, though. All it tests for is, are you having problems with financial decision-making? It measures behaviors that put you at risk of fraud and abuse, whether you have cognitive issues making it difficult to manage finances, or and how good is your financial literacy. And I assume most Morningstar readers are, have good financial literacy, so that's a good one in their corner because people with good financial literacy can take care of their money much better, much longer. And the, with the cognitive part, it, it, green is good, yellow is concerned, red is bad. With the cognitive part, if you get a yellow, that means that one of three things, either you are having um, onset of early dementia, two, you have a medical problem making it difficult to make financial decisions, or three, you have advanced aging just making it difficult to, to deal with money and things in general. And so if somebody gets a yellow, it means that they really need to get help in there. They need to go see a doctor to see what's causing it. We've had a client who had a yellow on the cognitive screen, and we made sure he got to a doctor, and the doctor found out he was having mini strokes. And so that was a beautiful thing. For I mean, it wasn't good that he was having the mini strokes, but the fact that that, that we, that was kind of a sign as the financial decision-making issue that he was starting to have was one of the early warning signs that hopefully now that he's treated, he won't progress to a major stroke at some point. So it's important to police yourselves and there are tools out there to do that. Well, Carolyn, we've covered a ton of ground today, a lot of serious topics. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. I talk forever, so I appreciate you guys putting up with my long narratives there on some of these topics. You were great. We both learned a lot. Thanks, Very Carolyn. Insightful. Oh, good. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View from Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz and at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H in the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. 
The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy and or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services, LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data, analyses, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision. Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates are not affiliated with Life Planning Partners Inc.